The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website, northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. If the story of Jonah were written merely by a man, instead of by a man inspired by and guided by God's Spirit, chapter 3 would be the end of the book. Jonah got a second chance and he obeyed. The Ninevites got a second chance as they repented and God forgave them and they all lived happily ever after. But it doesn't end there, does it? In the final chapter, the focus shifts from Nineveh's revival to Jonah's reaction where God teaches this pouting, pitiful prophet something fascinating. That God has a deep love and concern for everything that he created. Jonah, on the other hand, let's look at the first five verses and notice how Jonah felt about God's deep breath of forgiveness that he offered to that wicked wicked pagan city of Nineveh. Jonah 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. We'll stop there. If we were reading the story of Jonah for the first time, chapter 4 would probably shock us. But Jonah's reaction isn't breaking news because we've been referencing this for weeks now. But now we're finally here. Jonah, a man who completely disobeyed God who tried to run from his presence, who was tossed into the Mediterranean Sea during a storm professional sailors had never seen before, a man who was swallowed by a fish, spent a few days in its belly, was vomited back up onto dry land, and lived to tell his story, is angry over someone else receiving mercy. What? It would be sad for any prophet to become angry with God showing mercy to someone, but for Jonah to do so after the mercy of God in his life, it makes it even more ridiculous and more tragic. And I want you to see in verse 1 that Jonah is more than just annoyed. He's more than just a little upset, a little disturbed by this, a little disappointed. 
Verse 1 is extremely emphatic about his reaction. Jonah actually viewed what God did as wrong. The word displeased in verse 1 is a word that means to be evil or to do wickedness. Think about that for a moment. Jonah is so furious that he essentially labels God's actions as evil. Great evil. And we're told he was very angry. Hebrew is a very concrete and picturesque language. And so sometimes the the words for anger are closely related to words for burning or for heat. And we want to understand that even in our day and time, in our culture too. Have you ever said, that burns me up? Well, then let's give you some Tylenol and get your fever down. No, that's not what we're talking about. It means I'm mad, I'm angry. So we use terminology like that. Jonah is burning up with anger. And that should actually make us think back to chapter 3 and verse 9. And if you look there, we see this phrase that the king of Nineveh used to describe God's fierce anger. It's not an identical expression, but there's some closely related terms there. And so by using these these similar terms so close together, there's this huge contrast between Jonah's anger here and God turning from his anger when the Ninevites repented. So what happened was that when Nineveh Nineveh repented, God's anger cooled down. And Jonah's anger heated up. How sad is that? One way to translate verse 1 is this. But it was evil to Jonah, great evil, and it enraged him. And in verse 2, we see what enraged him so much. And really why he disobeyed in the first place, right? He wasn't lazy. He wasn't afraid of public speaking. He wasn't afraid of a long journey. He wasn't really afraid of the Assyrians. He was afraid that God would be good to them. He disobeyed in chapter 1 because he knew the character of God. He knew how gracious and merciful and patient and kind God is. Normally in the Old Testament, when we see this beautiful, truthful description of God, it's used to praise Him. Jonah almost presents it like it's an indictment. I knew you. I knew you're good and gracious. I just knew it. There's never a good reason to disobey God, but that's got to be the worst Why didn't you do what God said? Because I know how good he is. What? But I believe Jonah didn't want the Assyrians. Those wicked people who were enemies of his own people to experience any of that goodness. But in the fish's belly, you remember he had what he thought was an epiphany. You know what? Idol worshipers don't, they don't get mercy from God anyway. They forfeit that. Maybe I'm worried for nothing. So when he was given a second chance, 
he went. He proclaimed judgment. But the Ninevites repented. And God did show goodness. And Jonah tells God now, in no doubt, the whiniest, poutiest, angriest voice possible, that's why I didn't want to go in the first place. And he's so mad, he wants to die. A man who has been mercifully rescued by God now begs for God to kill him since he wouldn't kill the Ninevites. I mentioned in chapter 1 that when Jonah proposed to be thrown overboard, that it wasn't courage. He would just rather die than repent. The same thing is true here. He'd rather die than watch the Ninevites live. Jonah's a sad, sad man. It's easy for us to see in these verses his hatred for those people. It's easy to see that his heart has not changed. He hasn't had some glorious experience. So no wonder chapter 4 exists. God's not finished teaching Jonah yet. There's still a lot more for him to learn. Boy, I'm glad people don't act like Jonah anymore, aren't you? Nobody ever gets angry with God when he's merciful to someone else who's not as worthy for those mercies as they are. I read from Luke chapter 15 earlier in the service, and you remember the religious leaders of Jesus' day when the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to Jesus, those sorry people, and Jesus was receiving him, and they, he was teaching them, and they were hearing him, they said, he eats and receives sinners? They didn't think that those sorry people deserved to be in Jesus' presence, or probably more so they were thinking if he truly were the Messiah he's claiming to be, he would know these kinds of people and who they were and what they've done, and he would have nothing to do with them. And do you know how Jesus responded to that? He told three parables describing the joy that comes when something that was lost is actually found. Whether it's a coin a sheep, or the parable we didn't read about a son. Restoration should produce joy, not jealousy. Jesus said there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Can you imagine how much rejoicing went on in heaven the day the Ninevites repented? Have you ever thought about that? How much joy in heaven. And yet, the man who presented the message is furious. Heaven's elated. Jonah's enraged. And it reminds me of that last parable that Jesus told, at least the ending of it. The parable we call the prodigal son. Prodigal son, the man has these two sons, and one of them demands his inheritance. He wants what's rightfully his. He takes it, and he goes off, and he lives immorally. He squanders his inheritance. He shames his family. He abandons them. 
Then when times get tough, he does humble himself. You read the parable, the man's truly humble. He crawls back to his father, just willing to be a servant. But you know the story. The father welcomed him with joy. Put together a big feast. It's a welcome home party. But there was a surprise ending of that parable. The main point of that parable was not the restoration of the younger son, but the bitter jealousy of the older son when his younger brother was restored. His younger brother didn't deserve such a reception. He never got that. And he'd been with his father the whole time, faithfully serving. If anybody deserved this, it would be me. I see a lot of Jonah in the older brother. Jonah felt like the Ninevites didn't, they didn't deserve that sort of a reception from God. Just like the religious leaders felt like these sinners don't deserve that type of a reception from someone who's claiming to be a rabbi and even the son of God. But here's the thing. None of us deserve a reception from God. Not one of us. So anytime we have anger or jealousy when God blesses someone else instead of us who obviously deserve it more, I go to church more than that person. I give more offering than them. I know more scriptures than they do. When we think like that, we're filled with an arrogant attitude of entitlement. And entitlement will get you nothing with God. Humility, however, will get you everything. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jonah is experiencing this tornado of anger. And in verse 4... God doesn't answer back with a tornado of his own, does he? Verse 4 is one of the most amazing verses to me in the whole book. The God who has caused this great storm on the sea and predicted great judgment upon a city when his prophet is, is irate, all he does is ask this really simple rhetorical question. Doest thou well to be angry? Jonah, is it right for you to be mad? I love what one author said. Instead of a thunderous, a thunderous blast of rebuke, the marvelous image of a tender God is portrayed. It's tough to, it's tough to indicate tone in text all the time. But I do see a gentle calmness here in God's question. It's just very simple. It's just... It's an invitation for Jonah to just consider himself. Jonah, are you really this mad? Do you have a right to be this mad, Jonah? I don't know if God's question calmed Jonah down. Maybe it did a little bit, at least right here. We're not, at least we're not told of any rebuttals yet from Jonah. He will later, but he just moves on then. He leaves the city, he builds a booth for shade, and he sits down to wait and see, uh, see what will happen to the city. And 
the picture of Jonah that I get here, I was disc golfing with one of my good friends one time. He was having a bad day. And he took his Frisbee bag by the, by the strap and he slung it up against a tree to get that anger out. But then I died laughing when his strap broke and all his Frisbees just started rolling everywhere. Because then he had to look like a fool walking around, gathering them all up. And when he finally got them all gathered up, put them in his bag, he went down to the tree, he broke his bag on, and he just sat down. Folded his arms. That's the picture I get of Jonah when he goes out of Nineveh. I'm, he gathers up some sticks and builds a little booth and just... Let's see what's going to happen here. I've never noticed this before. But in verse 5, when Jonah makes a booth, it's the same word that's used to describe the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. That was one of the major feasts in the nation of Israel. When it was time for the Feast of Booths, people would travel to Jerusalem and they would basically camp out on the Mount of Olives. They would build makeshift tents and shelters, these temporary dwelling places you could just sort of get under for, for a few nights. And they would stay out there. And the point of that feast, the point of building those temporary booths, was that it would make them think back to how their forefathers wandered in the wilderness in temporary dwellings, and yet God took care of them. God provided for them. They didn't have permanent homes. They didn't have permanent crops yet. And yet God was their protector. God was their provider. They never lacked anything. Did they deserve that mercy? No, they griped more than they praised. God is good. And that struck me this time. I'd never noticed that before. And I know this isn't a, a setting where we're, we're thinking about the Feast of Booths. That's not what Jonah's celebrating here. But just when you have a Jewish man building a booth, shouldn't he at least think back to that sometimes? And yet Jonah has no thought of God's mercy. He, he, he is not remembering how God took care of his forefathers when they didn't deserve it. Instead, he's looking down on a city hoping that God judges it. But he already knew God forgave them, right? That's why he's so mad. So why, why does he even do this? We're not really told his motivation other than just to see what will happen. I think the best, the best thought is just that maybe he hoped the Ninevites' repentance would be short-lived. Maybe if God sort of changed his mind once, maybe he'd change it back. You know, that, that's the only thing we can really come up with because he sat there to see what would happen. Whatever the reason beyond that, Jonah is focusing on the city. And that's really important. One author said this, rather than examining himself as the Lord had wished, he examined the city to see if they were the ones who would change. God's rhetorical question was meant for Jonah to start thinking about himself, to thinking about his own spirit and his own attitude. And yet, he's still more concerned with what's happening to the city down there. 
How often are we so much like Jonah, though? We can pick apart the lives of others. Just don't ask me to, to assess myself. We don't like self-evaluations. Jesus taught about that when he talked about the, the, the splinter in your brother's eye. You've got a log sticking out of your own eye. And he said, here, let me help you with that. Jonah needs to quit worrying so much about the city and look inside and consider his own heart and the changes that he needs to make. And while Jonah's pouting under this booth, while he's waiting to see what will happen, God is going to use the surroundings to set things up for the climactic lesson of the whole story. And it's not going to be a lecture. God isn't going to say it. He's going to sort of lead Jonah to it. God is going to use his creation once again and Jonah's own emotion to teach Jonah that God loves everything that he created. Look at verse 6 through 9. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. We'll stop there. In the same way God prepared the fish in chapter 1, he prepares the plant, the worm, and the wind here. It's the same word used. We see once again God's sovereign power over his creation. It's, it's immistakable. All of God's creation is serving him, doing exactly what he says, except Jonah. And I guess Jonah's booth-making skills were a little lacking because when this plant sprouts up overnight and gives him a little more shade, he's exceeding glad. I guess his booth didn't cut it. And so this man who was angry when God showed mercy is now rejoicing when he's got some shade. He'll rejoice over a shade tree, just not over repentance and forgiveness. How shallow and selfish is Jonah? But his shade doesn't last long, neither does his joy. The next day God prepared, appointed a, a worm to destroy the plant. And he sent a scorching wind in Jonah's direction. And that was too much. If Jonah's physical appearance was hurting from the fish's belly. If, if his skin was irritated and diseased, if God did not protect him from that, God could have, but if he didn't, 
Can you imagine how much the wind and the sun would hurt him? We get hot on hot, humid days like that when we're perfectly healthy and fine. If Jonah did have that to worry about, there's no wonder he fainted. And Jonah once again cries for death. Once more, God questions Jonah. And it's really the same question that he, that he said in verse 4 with an important addition. It's not generic, are you, do you do right to be angry? But this time there's that addition of the gourd, the plant. Do you have a right to be so angry about a little plant? And this time Jonah answers. He didn't answer earlier. This time he fired back, absolutely. You ask, I'm going to tell you. I have every right to be angry about this plant. I love that little guy. We had a connection. He was perfect for what I needed. I can't live without that guy. Just kill me now. Ironically, while Jonah was defending himself... He was walking right into the lesson God was preparing for him. Wouldn't call it a trap. I wouldn't say God trapped someone. But God knows Jonah's emotions. And Jonah responded exactly how God knew he would and exactly how God wanted him to. Because it set things up for the final lesson. That God loves and cares even more than that about everything he made. So look at verse 10 and 11. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, And also much cattle. We'll talk about the cows in a minute. The 120,000 people who didn't know their right hand from their left hand, that's understood differently. Some people think it refers to Nineveh's spiritual ignorance. Um, they, they didn't know about Yahweh and, and just different things like that. And that, that may be uh, part of it. Others think it refers to children, people that were young and, and you know, can't even discern, things like that. And either way, the point that God is making to Jonah is to see the huge contrast between a city filled with people versus one little gourd plant. And yet that one little plant Jonah took pity on. The word pity there in verse 10 some translated compassion and concern. Those are good translations. What it, the emotion that we're talking about here is really just the feeling that someone has towards something or someone else that, that's in trouble. Jonah's upset about this plant being destroyed. He, he wanted compassion showed to it. It's, 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 this little guy's in trouble. We need to help him. I've got a connection to him. 
He admitted how attached to it he was and how concerned for it he was. And so now God even points out, you had all of that connection, admittedly, to something you had no vested interest in. You didn't work for it. You didn't plant it. You didn't create it. You didn't water it. You didn't have this long-lasting, committed relationship to this plant that has stood the test of time. It's there for a day. And Jonah is so connected with it. Before we laugh too much at Jonah, do we ever do that with our emotions? Do we ever show passion? Deep passion for things that really don't matter that much. We ever get attached to something that's in the grand scheme of life really not that big a deal. Surely your mood's never been affected by the Razorbacks. You've never been angry when the waitress didn't bring the cheese dip. Cheese dip's important. We're like Jonah a lot. We invest in things. We care about things. We're, we're passionate about things. And those things aren't evil. And it's not wrong to be passionate about something. It, the plant wasn't evil. But God is making the point that if we have such passion for those things, then what does that say about the, the passion and mercy and grace of love for things that He did create? In fact, the word in verse 11 for spare, your translation may say pity, compassion, or concern there. It's the same word from verse 10 for Jonah's emotion. should be translated similarly, similarly to show that. Don't miss that. God is telling Jonah, if you can develop so much feeling in one day for a little plant that you had nothing to do with, then why is it evil of me to show feeling towards a city of people that I did create? And not just people. There's cows there, Jonah. It's one of the greatest things in the whole Bible, isn't it? One of the most unexpected lines in the whole Bible. This grand story of Jonah and the great fish and the great revival and the great forgiveness, it ends in a cow pasture. Jonah didn't even care about the people of Nineveh. God cared about their animals. Isn't that awesome? And then that's it. The story just abruptly ends. We're left hanging. Why does this story just come to this screeching halt all of a sudden? It's for shock value. It's for that very reason. Because it forces you to stop and consider this final punch. God loves everything He created. And then the story just stops, and we're forced to consider that. We're not even told if Jonah got the lesson. What happened next? You know, did Jonah argue some more? Did he finally get it? Quit worrying about Jonah. 
and worry about you. Don't set up your booth and look down to see what will happen to Jonah. Instead, ask yourself, what would have happened to me without the mercy and grace of God? Ask yourself if you truly understand the depths of God's compassion for his creation. Forget about Jonah. What about you? How would you finish this statement? I would be furious if God showed mercy to blank. Is it a specific person? Is it a, a country? Is it a certain culture, a certain racial or ethnic group? Who would make you squirm if they were saved and wanted to join our church? Be honest. Jonah was probably like most Jews who felt very privileged and arrogant about their standing before God. That they were better than others and no Gentiles, nobody outside of the, the covenant relationship that, that Israel has with God. They don't deserve anything from God. But remember, God is sovereign everywhere. We learned that early in Jonah. He's not one of these territorial false gods whose powers are limited by geography. The whole universe is his territory. And just as his power knows no boundary, neither do his love, mercy, and grace. They don't stop at the borders of Israel. And they don't stop whatever border your heart puts up for people. If there's anybody that we can put in the blank then we're a lot like Jonah and not a lot like Jesus. Jonah hated his enemies. You better be thankful Jesus loved his. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5 that God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ did not die for one deserving soul. Not one. We didn't deserve to have the Lord of the universe willingly take our sin, take our shame, take our punishment upon his shoulders and take them to the cross. We didn't deserve that one bit. But that's what makes it so amazing. Jesus gave his life for sinners, all of them, because God compassionately loves everything and everyone he created. If we'll remember that, if we'll remember the gospel, it will be a big part of overcoming any hatred that we have for others, any jealousy that we have when someone else is blessed and not us. Because we remember that we're undeserving of anything good from God, and yet He gives us good things anyway. So humility should guard us from having a heart like Jonah's. And when we grasp the depths of God's mercy 
That should motivate us even more to serve Him, to obey Him, to do the things He's commanded in His Word so that all of those other people that He loves so deeply might see His love through us. That they might see the way we live and the way we talk and what we do and be pointed to the God that changed us when we didn't deserve it. So quit looking at Nineveh, quit looking at Jonah, and let's look in the mirror. And let's ask God to help change our hearts, our attitudes, anything that needs to be changed in our life and our walk for Him. Be so thankful for the love and the mercy and the grace of God because you don't deserve it. That's not meant to beat you down. It's meant to make you amazed at God. And let's all be thankful that God always responds favorably to humble repentance. No matter who, no matter what, no matter where, no matter when, nobody is outside of the scope of God's love in Jesus Christ. It is offered to whosoever believes. If you've never repented before God and trusted Jesus as your Savior, do that, and He will do for you exactly what He did for Nineveh. He will forgive you. Just as Jonah was brought back from the fish, Jesus was brought back from the grave to give you life. You didn't deserve it, but that's why it's called mercy. Would you stand? Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we're thankful so much for the whole story of Jonah, but for chapter 4. And we pray that we will examine ourselves, Lord, assess our own hearts and our own attitudes, and help us to become more like Jesus, who loved his enemies, than Jonah, who hated his God, even when we were your enemies, sinners having nothing to offer, we're so thankful for the love of Jesus Christ. If there's someone here today, Lord, who is lost, we pray for their salvation, and we pray that you'll break our hearts and change us to become more like you each day. Bless us, Lord. Bless our church if it's your will. We are so thankful for your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We pray you were encouraged by today's message from the Word of God. This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website, northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.